Hi, I'm Emily Salaby, founder of Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company, and your host on the Hazard Girls podcast here on Jacket Media. I'm so honored to host this show where I get to chat with Hazard Girls about their careers. Hazard Girls is an online community for women working in traditionally male-dominated fields. On our show, you'll get to hear from these amazing women about the path that led them to their current careers, challenges they've overcome, advice for other women in entering these industries, and more. Our guest today is Dinah Trout, the co-founder and CMO of Health Aid Kombucha. Health Aid Kombucha is a wildly successful multi-million dollar beverage brand that retails in 45,000 stores across the U.S. Dinah has a master's degree in nutrition and public health and is a huge advocate of wellness and especially gut health. Dinah led Healthy Kombucha for 10 years as its CEO. In 2021, the company was acquired by their longstanding partner, First Bev, and Dinah's role shifted from CEO to Chief Mission Officer. Welcome to the Hazard Girls podcast, Dinah. Thank you. Well, first of all, I love Healthy Kombucha. I've got it right here. I had to go get a few different flavors so we could talk about it, but I've always been a fan of probiotics. Just growing up, it was like yogurt was like a food group in my house. Yeah. My mom always my mom always talked about the benefits of probiotics. So I'm excited to learn a little bit more about it from you today. Can you tell our listeners what kombucha is? Like some of them may not know. Yeah. So kombucha, simply put, is fermented tea. So just like yogurt is fermented milk and kefir is a version of fermented milk, kombucha is fermented tea. And it's naturally rich in not just probiotics, although that's sort of the most known thing about it. It's also rich, probably even more importantly, rich in prebiotics and postbiotics. So we can talk about those later in the show, but fermented foods are very unique in that they carry all three of those prebiotics, probiotics, and postbiotics. And it's the only natural thing out there that actually has all three, which is probably why they've been used for thousands and thousands of years for health. But yeah, kombucha is just one form of a fermented food. It's a bubbly drink that tastes a little sweet, a little sour. And I personally think it's delicious. It's not nearly as sweet as soda, but it still gives you that kind of soda feel when you drink it. Like it's pleasurable to drink. Yeah. You're drinking something refreshing. When you open up the kombucha and I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to open a new one. I don't know if you heard that. It was like, I'm going to do another one too. My family's going to drink these. This one is pink lady apple. Yeah. I don't know if you, could, if you can hear that in the microphone, but there you can hear the sound of the fizz. So it's a carbonated beverage. It's a it's a lightly carbonated beverage, right? Right, exactly. It should give you the same feeling that like a full flavored soda gives you versus like a water, right? Like we all drink sparkling water nowadays because you know it is what it is. It's 2022. That's what you do. This is a different experience than that. This is way full flavored. It, it's more like the experience of drinking a soda, which we've probably all stopped doing, but you don't have to feel bad about this one because it's way less sugar and calories and, and it's packed full of good stuff. So yeah, like you feel like you're doing something good for, you know, you're doing something good for yourself when you're drinking it. But what I like about it is that it is refreshing like a soda, but it doesn't give you that sugary feel yeah. like you're, you're putting too much sugar into your body and it's not boring like seltzer. Yeah. Exactly. I know. Let's be honest. Seltzer is, you know, just better <laughs> than water. It's just a hair better than water. And that's why we drink it. But this is a whole different experience. Cool. So now you studied nutrition in college and you have your master's degree in it, actually. 
Yeah. Is that how you became so interested in gut health or was this something that you were interested in even before that? It's been a long evolution, which started, I would say, actually more like grad school than college. In college, I was pre-med, so I was always interested in health. But I ended up in college doing an internship with a woman named Dr. Artemis Samopoulos, who coined the diet called the Omega diet, which basically is like a Mediterranean diet. But that was like back when that was not known yet. The idea that omega-3s are really good for heart health and a Mediterranean diet is the diet that people want to adopt for like a long, healthy life. Anyway, it was then that I really just fell in love with food and nutrition. And I actually switched gears from going to medical school, planning to go to medical school after college to instead of going to graduate school for nutrition. So yes, I did graduate uh, degrees. I did two, one master's in nutritional biochemistry and then one in public health nutrition. So spent about five years in Boston studying food. And it was there that I fell in love with kombucha and fermented foods. How did you first discover it? You know, anybody who's in graduate school for anything probably just becomes a bit of a nerd around that subject. And, you know, so all of us nutrition nerds, we're always just into food. You know, you you don't just learn about it. You heal with it. You cook it. You have fun with it. And I, in particular, have a philosophy around like holistic nutrition. And so I was just really into food, healing with food. And um, so, of course, I was sprouting. I was fermenting. I was doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And in my fermentation craze. I learned how to make a really good kombucha, a really good sauerkraut, really good kefir. And all of those were staples in my house and have been ever since. Kombucha, how is it actually helping your gut health? So actually all fermented foods, I would say, support gut health in the same way. They're all going to do it a little bit differently because they have different actual compounds. And that's why having a variety is key, but it's not just kombucha. So I had sort of alluded to this in the beginning. Kombucha has prebiotics, probiotics, and postbiotics. So maybe we can take a step back and just talk about what the gut has in it in general and why you'd want prebiotics. Is that a good place to kind of go from here? Yeah, I know that when I have an upset stomach, if I drink kombucha, it makes me feel better. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. let's take a step so, back and understand what those three things that you mentioned are and, okay. and why that so, so you may not know this, but our guts our home of most of our microbiome. The microbiome exists all over our body, but 95% of it exists in the gut. So it's arguably the most important part of our microbiome, the gut. And that gut essentially is trillions and trillions of microbes. And those microbes do a number of things. Those microbes are bacteria, yeast, and enzymes that live inside of our gut, and they help us digest they help us mine for nutrients that we can't ourselves get. So in food, if you didn't have these microbes, the food would just go right through. You wouldn't even get certain nutrients that you need to live. So they're like essential for us to live. But they also produce compounds called postbiotics. And postbiotics are the things that go off to your brain and tell it to release more serotonin or go off to your immune system and tell it to chill out or to step it up. So it's actually these postbiotics that arguably have the most sort of important function on our health. But of course, you wouldn't get those postbiotics unless you had these microbes in the first place. So 
So basically when we talk about probiotics, and that's probably the most well-known thing about gut health as far as it relates to food, probiotics are basically when you're eating these bacteria, yeasts, or enzymes on the outside and trying to get them to integrate with your inside microbiome. So you might take a probiotic pill or you might get probiotics from a fermented food or from a packaged food. And the idea or the hope is that those bacteria that you're eating, or those probiotics that you're eating, integrate into your microbiome and then can do all the things we talked about, right? Help you digest, help you mine for important things, and then produce these postbiotics. So you can get a lot of things that have probiotics in them. Unfortunately, probably like 75, 80% don't even make it to your gut and don't integrate with your microbiome. Is that even if it's a live probiotic? Even if it's a live probiotic. Now, fermented foods are different. And that's the beauty of nature. Much like when you eat a fruit or vegetable, the vitamins and minerals are bioavailable to us. It's similar in anything in food. As soon as you take a supplement of something that's not in the form of the food, it's just less available to us. And the same goes for probiotics. So it's not hurting us, but it might very well be a, a waste of money. And that's why the focus, as we've learned more about gut health, the focus has been more on prebiotics and postbiotics. Listen, I'm not saying that there aren't probiotics out there that don't get to your gut. There absolutely are. They're usually really clinically validated and like more expensive. And so, you know, you just have to be wary of that. They're usually refrigerated because probiotics are very finicky. They're live microbes, right? So they don't last a very long time. So you just have to be careful with those ones. For sure, the ones in fermented foods stay alive because just like in an orange, all of the environment of a fermented food is literally set up for it to survive, which is why I've always been a fan of food first for getting your nutrition versus like a supplement or a pill. My mom would love to hear you say that. She told me, she always <laughs> told me that. <laughs> And don't get me wrong, I take some supplements sometimes, but it's just, you should assume that food is where you're going to get the most sort of bang for your buck. So this is why fermented foods are so, so important. I think in the next 10 years, for sure, we're going to see that they just are so superior to any other form of food or supplement as it relates to gut health. So prebiotics. Okay. So we talked about probiotics. Probiotics are the microbes that you eat and your, your hope is that they integrate. Because what we know is that more bacteria in our gut is better. Like we know that the more abundant your microbiome is, everything is better for you. Like immunity, energy, metabolism, digestion, everything, how much your baby cries, how much milk you produce. I mean, it's like literally the evidence is almost overwhelming how many things the gut impacts when it's healthy. And it's pretty simple, more abundant bacteria, more health. Okay. So you're trying to increase your bacteria essentially in your gut. How do you do that? Well, you could take a probiotic, right? We talked about that many of those don't end up going to where we want them to, but you could do that. Mm -hmm. Another thing is fermented foods. And so the reason you would consider fermented foods, of course, it has the probiotics, but it also has prebiotics. So let's talk about prebiotics. Prebiotics are basically the food that the bacteria in your gut eat. So they eat all kinds of indigestible fibers and things called polyphenols and other compounds that are found richly in vegetables and fruits, beans, legumes. And they're basically things that your body doesn't digest or use, but these bacteria like thrive on. 
So the theory is if you have, and it's not even a theory, it's now proven. If you have a diet rich in prebiotics, you're going to have a very abundant microbiome because it's sort of like if you build it, they will come. You're building a food source for these bacteria. They're going to show up. They're going to have food. So they're then going to grow. So by having a prebiotic rich diet, you're actually chances of having gut health are like well and above average. So in 10 years ago, we used to recommend in nutrition, 20 years ago, we used to recommend taking probiotics. Well, now we've learned a lot. And actually the recommendation is eat and drink prebiotics because those will actually create an environment for your microbes to live and grow. So prebiotics are vegetables, fruits, legumes, beans, but then also fermented foods. So things like apple cider vinegar are really high in prebiotics. Any kind of those fermented food is going to be high in prebiotics as well. When someone starts changing their diet and incorporating more prebiotics and fermented foods, what can they expect to see as far as a change in their body and how long does it take? Oh, that's a great question. So, you know, some people, I think it really varies. And I guess it also depends. Are you in the realm of like normal microbiome and you're just like supercharging it? Or are you in a place where you would be abnormal or sick? And those probably would be you know, take more time. And maybe there's even some issues you'd have to alleviate. And in those cases, I really would suggest talking to a gut health specialist, not necessarily your doctor, but someone who can really help you alleviate those, those issues probably through, I bet you fermented foods and specialized probiotics. But let's say you're within the realm of normal. The thing I typically hear as a nutritionist is that it's pretty quick. Like few days of doing this regularly, you start to notice differences. And the difference you might most notable immediately is like your digestion. And I hate to talk about poop, but you know, we're supposed to be pooping every day. It's supposed to be easy, not a strain, and it's supposed to look normal, right? And there's something called the Bristol stool chart. You can look it up. But most people are not doing that. Like 70% or so are not just meeting us there. Every day, easy, looks normal. And that to me is an indication that most people do not have a microbiome that's, you know, healthy and intact because that's the number one sign that it's off. So the way you would notice it's getting better, I think, is that that starts to get better. Your digestion is normal. Let's say your digestion already is normal. Well, then you probably might see the differences in a longer period of time. Things like skin health tend to improve, hair health, but that takes time three, four weeks sometimes, but usually not long at all. No, no. It's like, it's sort of subtle, right? With any food change, but you know, you start to say, wait a second, I haven't gotten sick this year. You know, you're not like timing it, but that's the type of stuff your microbiome can do. It like protects your, your immunity is all in your gut. So if your gut's healthy, your immunity is healthy, most likely. And so those are the types of things you start to see, just like less colds, cleaner skin, glowing skin, more energy, but the poop is like the sure sign. That's the indicator. (laughs) I know. It's so crazy. It's not like you just said, oh, kombucha is going to be the up and coming thing. I'm going to start a company. You actually really know your stuff. I mean, you're an expert in this field. You and you're one of the co-founders along, I believe, with your husband. And there's a big leap from having a passion about something and having an expertise, an academic expertise and starting a company, right? So what was it that gave you that impetus to actually say, actually, like, 
there's not a, a good kombucha out there. There's not a good enough kombucha out there. I need to make this company. What was it? The truth is, so I started it with my husband and my best friend, Vanessa. So there were three of us that started it together. And the reason that's important is, you know, those two, they were not nutritionists. That was really my drive. I wanted to bring real food to the commercial shelf. I knew I made a great kombucha. I knew gut health was on the rise. I wanted to like contribute to that. So that was my drive. But in general, the three of us all wanted to build a company like that was something that we all wanted. We wanted to stop living paycheck to paycheck. We wanted to build something on our own terms, something we could be proud of. We had all come from kind of like corporate places and we were very rebellious against that. You know, we wanted to build something that like, yeah, you can have pink hair. We don't care about that. And so I think that was also the drive. I did. I did. I (laughs) I was the CEO with pink, purple, blue, you know, every color under the sun hair for like the first six years until my hair started to get <laughs> super brittle. And then I'm like, all right, you got to chill out on that. But that was a big driver too. It wasn't just that, you know, I was in love with fermented foods. It was also very much just an entrepreneurial journey, you know, that I had a passion to start something on my own, even without the experience, even without the money, we were able to do it. And that I hope inspires others to do it too, if they have that dream. On Hazard Girls, as you probably know, we interview women who are killing it in these male-populated industries. And, you know, the, the term is usually male-dominated, right? But in recent years, somebody at the National Association of Women in Construction was like, why are we saying dominated? They're not dominating. They might be. There might be more of them, but we're, we're dominating. <laughs> so <laughs> we, we like to say male-populated sometimes. But, you know, we interview all these women crushing it in these male-populated industries. So I'm curious about the beverage industry. I'm assuming there are a lot of men in leadership throughout the beverage industry, but what is that space like for women? I think it's changed over the last decade, which is good. But yeah, I, I still think it's heavily male populated, especially in the workforce. When I say workforce, I guess I should say, especially in workforce leadership, like executives, it's very male dominated. And even in the buyer space, it's pretty populated. I like that, by the way, I'm going to stop saying (laughs) Yeah, no pressure. Um, It's very populated also in the buyer space. So like when you go to target meetings or like Walgreens meetings or wherever you're trying to sell your product, you're talking to like somebody who is not your customer that is buying on behalf of 3000 stores in America or something crazy like that. So if they don't like your ashwagandha tea, it ain't getting on the shelf for all of those consumers that do want it. So like it is something to consider in beverage and food that your consumer is not the only one you're selling to. And you've got to balance that both what the consumer wants and what your buyer wants, you know? Uh, anyway, that's sort of a tangent. Yeah. So lots of males, you know, my board room, it was me and a bunch of males. Pretty much that's been my whole life at Health Aid, with the exception of our company. We built a company of, I would say, Probably we have more women than men working there, but it's just really diverse. And so you see that too now in beverage. I would say from a founder perspective, there's a lot more females I'm seeing, you know, starting companies in CPG and in food and beverage. And that's pretty cool because I know they're going to build companies that are diverse and gender and race. And so I think that will evolve over time. But yeah, we're still in a space that I would say feels somewhat dated sometimes. In the industries that our listeners are in, like engineering, construction, trades, and business, 
a lot of us, and I say us because like my background is tr- in the trucking industry, got into our field through men. So we're talking about like maybe fathers, husbands. And I'm wondering, because I know you work with your husband, do you have any advice for women who may be dealing with unfair assumptions on their abilities simply because they are working with a male partner? Hmm, that's a good question. Well, those assumptions existed for me too, by the way. People always assumed he was the CEO, you know? And I'm like, no, no, that's me. But I do think that with time and with courage, this changes because a lot of this isn't true, like discrimination, I would say. A lot of it is just what people are used to. And so if people are just used to, you know, an all male boardroom, for example, and then you're the first woman on the board, you know, you're going to feel different and they're going to look at you different at the beginning because you are different. But then soon enough, over time, they get used to it and everybody get used to it. And then there's another one. And then there's another next thing, you know, maybe it takes 10 years and it's unfortunate that it does, but then there's half the boardroom that's women. And I think the same goes for any kind of different race, et cetera. So like, I will say that the advice I have is to stick it out, be courageous, stay there. Don't, you know, fall under the rock and step away because you're the one that's different. It's okay. You're the only one in the beginning. That's how it is. Soon there'll be two, you know, and then there'll be three. And then, and then I think you can start to make progress, but yeah, the assumptions I get are there. And I think rather than getting angry about it, you know, you just have to have the courage to really stay there and continue to be your badass self, even amidst all of the assumptions. And you just have to like politely or whatever, who cares about the polite part, but just professionally correct people, you know, no, he's not the CEO. I am. Thank you. Oh, well, you know, was your dad in business or your dad in beverage? No, no. We built this from the ground up with all of our saved dollars in the farmer's market. Thanks. But, you know, I think you just have to hit it sort of right on the head and not be passive aggressive about it and just, you know, be the bigger person and correct them and move on. Like, I think change happens over time. It's not a fast thing with things like this. I like what you said about making sure you're correcting. Because I mean, a lot of times it's not so straightforward, like, oh, your husband's a CEO. It might just be, you can tell that's the assumption without anyone having said anything. And like correcting it might be like a proactive thing that we have to do, right? Like you notice the assumption. Oh my gosh, it happens all the time. I mean, just the other day, like I want to say just a couple of weeks ago, I'm not going to name who it was, but I was in a conversation with a male executive who's been in the beverage space for a long time. And I know he didn't mean anything by it because he's not, you know, he's got daughters. He's super respectful toward women, at least on the outstand. But he just said something like, I was complaining about wearing a suit for this upcoming European meeting. And he said, and I said, I can't believe they're making us wear suits. I mean, what is this 1920s? You know, I haven't worn a suit in forever. And he said, well, that's because in Europe, women don't run businesses. And I was like, uh, I wasn't aware that women don't run businesses in Europe. (laughs) Also, that has nothing to do with what I was talking about. I was talking about suits. Also Um, not true. (laughs) Also not true. I mean, just on so many levels, an asinine comment, but I saw he didn't even realize it was an asinine comment, you know? So look, I could have walked away from that and just huffed and puffed and told my friends about it. What an asshole. Right. But instead I was like, uh, please tell me what you mean by that comment. Yeah. 
you know, like, I don't get how that relates to what I was saying. And he, and then he kind of fumbled his words. And I was like, oh, actually, I think more than half the participants in this meeting are female. So it, it's nothing to do with that. And I'm pretty sure Europe is probably even better than the US in terms of the amount of women leaders in business. I'm not sure of that, but it seems that way, at least when you look at like government makeups. So, you know, I just sort of politely corrected him and he like moved on. I'm not sure what his process was internally, of course, but I certainly feel a lot better about being professionally proactive about it than huffing and puffing and passive aggressive and walking away and like doing that kind of like sideways stuff. Because I got to believe that that conversation, because he's a smart guy, I got to believe he took away from that. Oh, I don't know why I said that. That was dumb. (laughs) That's the hope anyway. Yeah. And then, and then also you set an example for anyone else in the room who was happened to be listening, whether they're women or men, you know, yeah. that's, uh, thanks for sharing that story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but it's all the time, right? Yeah. Like that's right. an example from two weeks ago. It's every, <laughs> all the time we're encountering this and you have to have the courage to just, you know, to say, to say it like it is. But I do think it's important that you're not like passive aggressive or like, sort of what's the word like deflective about it like that's not a word but I think you know what I mean because that doesn't get you anywhere if you're being passive aggressive you're only going to get someone that responds defensively you want to try to be that like bigger person it's just like right I mean so much of our job these days no matter what we do is educating people right yeah doesn't it seem like that yeah yeah totally let's talk about your role you're the co-founder you spent 10 years as CEO and you're now the CMO, which is the chief mission officer. Right. What would you say are the main differences in your responsibilities? What are you doing now? Oh my gosh, huge differences. <laughs> no, listen, I loved being CEO. It was so amazing and for sure a calling for me. As CEO, you are the true, you know, you are the buck sort of stops with you. So there is a an incredible amount of thrill and fulfillment from that job. It's like, in one day, you are challenged on every single aspect of your intellect from, you know, mathematics to creativity, to problem solving, to people, you know, skills, and it's constant and nonstop and you're back to back and it's fulfilling and it's thrilling. And there's never one day the same as the next, especially in a company that's like being built versus one that's like steady Eddie. So I loved it. Um, And I was good at it, but it is also very tiring. And that kind of stress and sort of demand on your brain and your body and your soul and whatever, especially when it's your own company. So it's like your baby too. There's such an emotional component to that. It just really tired me out. And after about a decade, I was like, all right, I need a break from this, but I still want to, you know, work toward my passions. And I still have really, I think a lot of gifts to give, especially to health aid. So with the company that acquired HealthAid, they were very, you know, appreciative that I wanted to stay on. And they were like, whatever you want to do. And so I designed a role of the things I love and that I knew wouldn't be so demanding for a time. So I built the role called Chief Mission Officer. And essentially my job has gone from being very day-to-day as a CEO, you are day-to-day, you know, lead operator. So Everything that relates to the business is your problem. And by the way, you don't get the easy problems. Somebody else 
in the company does. So the ones that come to you are always by definition, the hard ones, the ones that don't have a clear answer and the ones that require, you know, they have all kinds of complex and complicated ramifications. So like, it's tough to be in that seat. If you guys know any CEOs, just shoot them a text, you know, <laughs> let them know you, you feel them because it's not an easy job. The chief mission officer is amazing. My job is to bring gut health one step forward. Like our mission as a company is to unlock the power of the gut for people, wherever they are with their knowledge and understanding of gut. We want to bring that one step forward. And obviously we make a kombucha. So it's a gut supportive, gut friendly drink. And as we innovate, we'll continue to bring gut friendly things to the table, but it's not just about that. It's also about educating, as you put it, and serving underserved communities, bringing them one step forward. So in my job, I'm leading all sustainability and community responsibility efforts. I'm educating our own employees on gut health. I'm trying to educate consumers on gut health. We've shifted our packaging entirely with more gut health messaging. All the gut health messaging we're making in marketing is written by me. And then, you know, from a clinical science perspective, we're doing studies and studies on humans with kombucha and trying to see what kinds of outcomes it has. Those ones are the most frustrating because they take the longest. How long does a study take? I mean, it depends. Right now we're doing exploratory studies. So we're trying to see like high level, where would kombucha make a difference? Blood sugar, immunity, energy, skin, like a lot of things. Those take like a year. But if you're going to do like a, let's say one of those comes out and says, oh man, kombucha really helps with blood sugar. Like let's do a trial on diabetics. That then would take probably years because you have to, you know, design the study, find the patients, get it all approved by the different required government bodies, and then actually do it and publish it. So I know the study part, like I wish we could just snap our fingers and do it super fast. Even if the study is only 30, 60 days, it can be a whole year to actually, you know, soup to nuts, start to finish, do it. Yeah. So you, you have this whole academic side of your job still because you're, you know, you're doing, you know, really scientific studies, which I know our audience is going to love this because we have so many women in STEM fields and this is like the kind of stuff we love. So they're going to love that aspect of, you know, learning your story. But I think they're also, you know, going to just love hearing about your journey in this business, health aid kombucha. And, you know, a lot of the women that listen to our podcast are from these fields of like construction and trades as well. And architecture and fields where we end up running our own businesses. And that's, and sometimes, you know, it's what, maybe what we always wanted, but sometimes it's because like, it was tough in working in a corporate setting and people decide to go out on their own. And so we have a lot of people that are running their own businesses. So I would just love to ask you, mm -hmm. looking back on you, cause you, your company is wildly successful and looking back on what you've accomplished, what would you say was your biggest mistake? What would something you'd go back and not do hmm. differently? Let me think on that. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to take a sip of my kombucha while I wait. <laughs> you know, when you're building a company, it is not a linear line up. I'll just start there. I think there's this vision that like, and it is a good vision to have. You should always have a plan that, you know, you're going to build this. It's going to grow like this. You're going to do this. It'll grow. And it looks like this perfect sort of staircase at the top. And it doesn't look like that. It looks like a crazy roller coaster ride. And so first I wanted to just say that because 
I've probably made one trillion mistakes, but I wouldn't call them mistakes because if it weren't for those moves, I wouldn't have ended up on the move that ended up working. You know what I mean? So I think that's just sort of how entrepreneurship and building a company is. You fall off the horse, you get back on and do it better. And then that happens like a thousand times a day. (laughs) And, and, and then the winner, you know, if you think in that mindset is the one that just kept getting back on and doing it and like doing the thing. It was like a meme that went around. It was a graph going upwards and it shows like, it, then it suddenly peaks up and like right at that spot, right before it starts to peak up, it says like, this is where most people quit. Yeah, sure. It's like the same thing as that guy that's mining and he's like a foot away from the yes. diamond and then he gives up. Yeah. It's like, I used to say it all the time to myself, especially as CEO, I'd be like, it's just like getting a parking spot in the Trader Joe's parking lot. Like you just got to keep going around. Eventually one's going to be yours. And in, in a weird way, there is that sort of like zenness to it. So anyway, to those of you that are out there feeling like, oh my gosh, this is hard. Like you're exactly where I was. It is hard. It's constantly problem solving and mistakes and learning from them. So it's hard for me to answer that question. Like what's the biggest mistake, right? Because it's like, well, on one hand, I'm compassionate to myself because I don't like to call them mistakes or regrets because I think they were like very important in my journey and all of your lessons are. But I think probably the biggest one, because I know the spirit of your question, is it relates to investors. And it was a really important lesson at which point, like kind of it was a marquee moment for me as a CEO. And the lesson was your investors are not your friends. Now, I don't know if there was a mistake in there per se, but I sort of went, I think I had like an idealistic idea of what an investor was, like a private equity investor, that they were like true partners and we were like totally aligned. And what I learned is that they, in fact, have their own business and their own goals. Health aid was a tool for them. And there are parts where we're aligned and parts where we're partners, but we are not entirely aligned. And there will be times where what the private equity company or the investors want is different than what you think the company needs. And perhaps there's even a third thing that's different. And that would be like what you want and need as an individual person. Because remember, you are also not your business as the founder. So that was a very big aha moment for me, realizing that like, we are not all just one. We're not all here to die for health aid. You as an individual, you have like rights and needs and like, they may sometimes conflict with what health aid needs. And then same thing with your investors, like they have their own thing and there might be something going on in their world that makes them make a decision that's like not good for you or for health aid and for them. So It's not that investors are bad or anything like that, but that lesson of knowing they are not like you are all not just one big conglomerate that's only there to serve health aid was a very important lesson for me along the way. Because then you start to recognize like, wait a second, what are Dinah Trout's needs as an individual, right? Especially when I started to grow a family, like raise a family, like that started to become really clear. Like I can't give everything to health aid and my son, you know? And then I had two sons. So, you know, you start to learn boundaries there. But same thing with the investors. The more you can understand what their goals are and what's going on in their world, and you can start to understand why they might be wanting a certain thing, it can help you sort of like make the best decisions. At the end of the day, as CEO, your job 
your job is to do the right thing for the business, regardless of what the investors say, regardless of what your needs are. That's what your job is. Now, you have to obviously do that balancing all the things, but you should never feel bad about doing the right thing for the business, even if it's against what the investors say. Anyway, I sort of regurgitate a bunch of things, but that was the biggest lesson. You mentioned earlier, because healthy kombucha is like mostly in the U.S. market, but kombucha is like a $2 billion worldwide market or something. I think I read 1.8 in like 2019. I don't know what it is now. And you mentioned the European meeting. Are you, is that your next step? It's one of our big next steps. Yeah. Health aid it plans to grow geographically. So Europe, not just Europe, but Middle East, Asia, Australia, we're coming for you. <laughs> yeah. We're excited about that. We also plan to grow in other channels in the US. So like we're in actually probably closer to 60,000 stores now, but that's mostly like grocery and where you buy your like groceries. But where we would love to get into more is like convenience stores and then also your restaurants and the cool cafes and everything. And that's a whole different ball game. And then we'll grow too from an innovative standpoint. So I think like the products that we offer today, kombucha mostly, we have pop also, will continue to expand there as well. And they will always be though delicious and they will always be gut health oriented. Like I will never create anything healthy, would never make anything that's not super good for the gut. Super inspiring. Well, Dinah Trout, co-founder and chief mission officer of Healthy Kombucha. This stuff is so good and so good for you. I'm excited. I went out. I use this as a big excuse to go out and buy a lot so I can drink it all. It's really yummy. I love the flavors. Watermelon, tropical punch, bubbly rose, and pink lady apple. Yum. Those are four of my favorites right really? there. We have the same palette. Yeah. But thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with us on the Hazard Girls podcast. We're really excited to watch your company continue to grow and see what happens next. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure talking to you as well. You have been listening to the Hazard Girls podcast on Jacket Media, sponsored by Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company. That's junojonesshoes.com. And you can go there to learn about our steel toe boots and to join the Hazard Girls community. I'm your host, Emily Salaby. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.